0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. We are continuing the Sumerian royal cycle by moving on to the two-part tale of King Lugalbanda, told in Lugalbanda and the Mountain Cave and Lugalbanda and the Anzu Bird. These stories pick up shortly after our story from last time left off. If you'll recall, last time King Enmerkar of the wealthy and powerful city Urk had sent a large number of diplomatic entreaties to the lord of a city called Arata, nestled deep in the mountains of modern-day Iran, finally receiving Lord Arata's notice of submission. However, sometime between the end of the last tablet and the start of this one, it seems that Lord Arata again went back on his word. Sometime around the year 2700 BCE, Uruk was the strongest of the cities on the plain of Sumer the bottom portion of Mesopotamia, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern-day Iraq. Meanwhile, the exact location of the city of Arata is still unknown, but was likely somewhere in modern-day Iran, over a substantial number of high and inhospitable mountains. The king of Arata thought he was safe at this great distance, but King Enmerkar of Uruk, was not going to let a few mountains stop him from getting proper justice on the liar and cheater. And so the tale of Lugalbanda begins with the declaration of war that we spent the last episode waiting for. On the north bank of the Euphrates River sat a wealthy and well-irrigated plain known at the dawn of history as the Land of Kulaba. At the beating heart of the Land of Kulaba sat the first wonder of the world, 80,000 men and slaves living behind high walls and within even higher structures of clean and durable mud brick. For a few hundred years, there were three square miles on the surface of the Earth where nomadic transience and subsistence agriculture had been replaced by technology, prosperity, and civilization. From the formation of the Earth in the cold void of space four billion years ago until this time there had never been a great city like Uruk. But that arrogant fool, Lord Arata, has raised his mace in rebellion against King Enmikar. He thought he was safe behind the high mountains of the Iranian plateau. So Enmikar told his herald to sound all the trumpets in the kingdom to order up a muster. And all at once, from atop the high walls, a signal rolled out and carried across the entire land of Kulaba. In the city, the men of Uruk were mustered like a great flood, while from the surrounding countryside, the men were mustered like a clouded sky. And the whole army kicked up so much dust as they milled about outside the walls that the gods in heaven began to cough. At the head of the army, obviously, was King Enmerkar. The idea of leading from the rear, or of delegating a military campaign to a subordinate, has not yet been invented. Then beneath him were eight generals, seven of them were seven brothers, each the children of the goddess Eurus, who had been raised in the wilderness by wild cows. Each one of them was a hero amongst men in the absolute prime of life. Then beneath them was the usual set of military officers, and altogether each general commanded 25,200 soldiers, for a grand total of 202,000 men under arms. This number is patently absurd. Even the most generous population estimates for Uruk is only 80,000. And though they may have been able to call troops from nearby cities, not even the greatest empires of the Bronze Age would be able to field half of that, much less at such an early period for an expedition meant to travel so far over hostile territory. The Eighth General was a youth named Lugalbanda. He's a mix of things. He had been a shepherd before being called to military service, but he was also descended by a different line from the same sun god, Shamash, who was the ancestor of King Enmerkar. His very name means young and fierce king, so clearly his mother either had some sort of premonition when he was born, or he's being known here by a name taken after he became king. The scholars seem sort of uncertain whether these somewhat grandiose regnal names were taken as children in ancient Sumer or just upon ascending to the throne. In this grand parade, it's said that when he was presented to the troops, he first ritually bathed himself, then walked down the ranks and the entire army fell silent in awe at the sight of him. Clearly, part of the story of Lugalbanda is simply lost to time and makes my heart ache that we won't know why he was held in such high regard even at the start of this particular adventure. In fact, this is the only story of Banda that survives, despite having mentions in other places that he went on other adventures and was even king in Uruk for an extremely long time. But this is the nature of trying to piece together a 5,000-year-old story. Many of the pieces simply didn't survive the ages. In any case, the army set out east towards the rebellious Arata. On the sixth day, they stopped and took a bath. Very hygienic, these people. And then on the seventh day, they entered the mountains. This is actually a fairly reasonable timeline. Assuming they marched 20 to 30 miles a day, they would reach the western edge of the Persian mountains from the city of Uruk. But then, halfway through the high and difficult mountains... Lugal Banda caught what the text calls head sickness. He jerked like a snake dragged by its head with a reed. His mouth bit the dust like a gazelle caught in a snare. No longer could his hands return the hand grip. No longer could he lift his feet high. Was this epilepsy, long regarded as a holy ailment in the ancient world, or was it a more common disease that's been exaggerated like many other aspects of this tale? Whatever the truth of it, no one in the army could cure him, and in the vast, inhospitable mountains, they couldn't afford the rations to stand around being indecisive about it. They considered sending him back home, but to send only a small contingent to carry him back would have been dangerous in general, and probably too taxing for a deeply sick man. And so they found a mountain cave and lit a fire to keep him warm and wrapped him up in linens. They put in the cave a whole storehouse of foods and multiple kinds of beverages and wrapped him with his axe and dagger. All in all, an effect that looked like he was being wrapped for a funeral, even going so far as to light incense. His friends, the other generals, felt a little guilty about this, but justified it to themselves. If, like the sun in the morning, he rose again, resurrected from this illness... Then he'll have enough food and supplies to make it back to Uruk. But if he gets called to the afterlife, then at least he has enough provisions here for that journey too. We'll make sure to bring his body back with us when we pass by here again. And as the men as close to him as brothers walked out from the cave, Lugubanda stared at them, his eyes overflowing like irrigation ditches, But his lips stayed closed his friends made a great show of weeping and mourning as they left him but they left him just the same for two and a half days lugal banda suffered alone in the cave shivering and sweating in turn until finally in pain he lifted his eyes towards the sun his father shamash in heaven and cried out to him please Let me be ill no longer. Here I am, all alone. No family, no friends, not even an acquaintance here. Anyone who saw me would say that it isn't right for me to die here. As they say, a lost dog is bad, but a lost man is terrible. I'm in some unknown cave on some unknown mountain. I'm going to die in an obscure hole like a weakling. And Shamash who is the god of the sun, but also of justice, sent him down some encouragement. Lugobanda couldn't do much with encouragement, though, because it didn't make him any less sick. He knew better than to curse the gods, but switching gods was also an option. This is, in fact, a common religious tactic in Sumer. With so many gods, if a ritual dedicated to one of them failed to achieve the desired outcome then perhaps you were addressing the wrong god. Ishtar, he said, lady of mercy and love, bring me comfort like you bring food to a poor man. Bring comfort like your prostitutes bring delight to the inn. I cannot die in battle, it seems, but I can't even die in the comfort of Urk. And blessed Ishtar gave him the comfort of sleep, and in his dreams she came to him and gave him comfort for the whole night, of course, the comfort Ishtar brings is usually the sort that taxes even a healthy man. But who are we to judge the gifts of the god? In any case, in the morning she returned to Uruk, and Lugalbanda returned to his suffering. And so next he tried the god Suen, not a deity we've encountered so far in this mythic cycle. He's had many forms over the centuries, and some claim he's even the moon god of Arabia, whose worship was so pervasive that many modern countries still have moons on their flags, the star being representative of the Arab version of Ishtar. Is this a true fact or a made-up internet fact? The world may never know. What Lugubanda knew was that he was supplicating his grandfather, God of Wisdom and the Moon, Father of the Sun. And so he cried out, not for pity, but for cosmic righteousness. "'Swen,' he said, "'you are the king so high that none can reach you. "'You are the king who loves justice and hates evil, "'smiting all the evil in your path.' I know that you become so angry when you see evil that you spit venom like a snake. And so the god of the moon heard this supplication and smote the sickness from Lugalbanda's body, because suffering and discomfort are one thing, but violations of the cosmic order are unacceptable to the Sumerian gods. And so Lugalbanda, now cured, stood up, and after another sunrise of rest, he left the cave, strong and healthy as a bull, and glowing with the radiance of the sun. He then gave praise to all the gods, even the ones that didn't really help him out much here, but you got to be complete with these things, and then he packed up as much as he could carry and went out into the night. There was no one in this miserable mountain wasteland. Even the goats that he hunted were scrawny and gross. He was forced to scavenge weird, scraggly plants off the mountainside, and he manages to catch a single wild bull. After eating some of the plants, he falls asleep before he has time to kill the animals and dreams the first drug-induced dream ever written about. According to the 5,000-year-old description of a psychedelic trip, he saw something like this. To the liar it talks and lies, to the truthful it speaks the truth. It can make one man happy, it can make another man sing, but it is the closed tablet basket of the gods. It is the beautiful bedchamber of Ninlil, it is the counsellor of Ishtar, the multiplier of mankind, the voice of one not alive. Zangara, the god of dreams, himself like a bull, bellowed at Lugalbanda in the form of half a cow. The god said, someone had better be sacrificing a wild bull and two goats to me. And not just that, this somebody had better wrestle the bull down unarmed, while at the same time killing the goats with somebody's axe and dagger, and then putting it all together in a blood pit and cover it with barleycorn so that it smells so good that all the snakes in the mountains can smell it. Then Lugalbanda woke up. He asked himself, Wow, how did the voice in my dreams just happen to know that I had captured a bull and two goats yesterday, and that I just happened to have an axe, dagger, and barleycorns? Surely this is too much to simply be coincidence. And so, Lugalbanda performed the sacrifices he saw in the dream. He wrestled the bull to death with his bare hands, and slew one goat with his axe and one with his dagger. What's the ritual and symbolic significance of this? I don't know, but surely the priests had an explanation beyond the obvious awesomeness of it. At which point... Demons of all the local gods arose from the fire, crackling out of the flickering shadows cast upon the corners of the mountains to consume the sacrifice. But that's cool. You don't mess around with gods who have aspects of fire demons. You just say, okay, and then you you move on. And so Lugolbanda moved on, wandering in the miserable loneliness of the mountainous wasteland. Until one day he reaches the Lullaby Mountains. It's just a coincidence that the name sounds like a fairy tale location. It didn't have the English meaning in Sumerian. And there he meets an adorable little Anzu bird. Now, a grown Anzu bird is a terrifying predator that eats fully grown bulls, but also, like dragons, are known to be wise. And so, partly from loneliness and partly to gain a favor, he takes some sweet food from his pack and makes a little cake to feed the hungry bird. Then, in his wisdom and cunning, he gives the bird a little more honey. Then feeds it some sheep fat. Then some goat fat. Then he starts tossing it more little cakes. Then he really starts pampering the bird, dabbing around its eyes with some nice makeup and puffing white cedar perfume around its head. You might ask why he had these things in the mountain wilderness, but remember that he had just been arranged as a corpse with lavish funeral offerings set before him. So it isn't quite as crazy as it might seem. And things like makeup and perfume were taken way more seriously in the old days than they are now. This is lavish royal treatment, more like the anointing of Jesus unless like the modern makeup day with the girls and just for completeness' sake he hung a few sticks of salt meat around the nest in easy reach of the now very contented baby bird then hid behind a tree after a bit papa bird and mama bird start flying back to the nest with a big haul from the day's hunt imagine An exotic, multicolored eagle, so massive that it can comfortably hold a fully-grown, still-live and struggling bull in each talon. The Anzu bird calls out to the baby bird that dinner's on its way, but unusually, the baby bird is silent. Anyone who knows babies knows that they make a lot of noise. And so Papa Bird completely freaks out with a massive screech that sends even the minor gods of the mountain scurrying into crevices like ants. Where is my child? But when Papa Bird and Mama Bird sprint back to the nest, they see Baby Bird gurgling happily with cute makeup on its face and perfume in its feathers and little meat sticks all around the nest. And as the Anzu bird is breathing a huge sigh of relief, Lugal Banda steps from behind a tree and begins to flatter the Anzu bird. And right away, he's really laying it on thick. He's going, bird with sparkling eyes. Your grandfather placed heaven in your hand and your spine is as straight as a scribe's your breast as you fly is like nura parting the waters and your back is like a verdant palm garden which was apparently all high praise 5000 years ago and the anzu bird begins to laugh from relief at seeing his child okay and from all the flattery ha ha you are good i like you how about this how about i send you back to uruk with a cart overflowing with gold and gems so that you can go back home with your head held high. Lugobanda shakes his head sadly at the bird and says, Well, I, I appreciate the offer, but I really don't need any of that. Nonsense, replies the Ansu bird. I can't just leave you without a reward. How about I give you... A bow with the power to shoot moonlight and sunbeams that will strike your targets like a viper. But again, Lugalbanda said that he didn't need any of that either. Well, said the Anzu bird, I can give you the impenetrable breastplate that will never permit retreat. You will always be like a rock in battle. But this too, Lugobander rejected. Ah, said the Anzu bird, I know what you really need. I have Dumasid's butter churn. I can give you a lifetime supply of butter. Lugubanda blinked. He paused and he said, Um, that's, that's okay, I really don't need that either. And the Anzu bird looked at Lugalbanda, and Lugubanda looked at the bird, and the bird said, Look, what game is this? Just tell me what you want or go away. And holy Lugalbanda, son of gods, replies, Anzu bird, put the power of running in my legs and strength in my arms. Let me reach any place my heart desires and never become weak. I would move with the power of sunlight, the grace of Ishtar, and the fury of the seven storms. Let me leap like a flame and blaze like lightning. Do this, and I will have every woodcarver in this city fashion a statue of you, and your name will be famous in all of Sumer, and the artistry will do credit to the gods. And the bird said sure, and it was done. Nanzubird told Lugubanda where he had last seen the Sumerian army giving him directions, since Lugubanda seemed quite keen on rejoining the fight. But he said, listen, don't tell anyone that you've been granted great strength and a heroic fate, because they're likely to get suspicious. Just be cool about all this. Lugubanda nodded, and in a single leap, he was suddenly in the midst of the siege camp outside the walls of Arata. He'd caught up with the men who had left him behind and was ready to get back to his original purpose of fighting a war. The soldiers of Uruk were all astonished, thinking he'd been certain to die out there and asking how he had survived. Circumspectly, he said that he'd just lived off the land like an animal and survived through sheer tenacity. He had enough reputation that this story was simply believed and there was much rejoicing at his return. Undoubtedly, even this modest interpretation of events did nothing but enhance his already massive reputation. And then, for a year, the soldiers of Uruk laid siege to the city of Arta, all day and all night throwing stones and arrows and javelins over the walls. This, at least, is what the story tells us, and indeed, around 2700, it's well possible that many of the later inventions, like rams and ramps and undermines and ladders and towers, have yet to be applied to siegecraft, or are simply unavailable in the unforgiving mountains. This was likely a period in which wall-building technology had outpaced siege-breaking techniques so the most important thing here is to simply prevent the city from accessing any outside sources of food or water. The whole throwing things over the wall would have been an added hazard, but I can't imagine that it did much more than keep up the attacker's morale and keep the defenders from getting too bold and maybe catch one or two idiot that strayed too close to the walls. However. After a year, the men began to grow uneasy with the lack of progress with the siege. King ad announced to the camp that they were going to seek the goddess Ishtar's advice on this matter. And everyone started nodding their heads in agreement. Then King ad said, All I need are a few volunteers to travel back to Uruk for a bit. And suddenly the soldiers just looked at each other. How exactly did we get here? Everyone in the camp seemed either too lazy to walk back or simply lost, and I presume the messenger from the last episode was sick to death of making the journey. As soon as the idea went from concept to execution, the number of volunteers declined dramatically, a situation which can still be seen in modern times. And so Lugelbanda stood up and said, I will go But only if you give me the divine royal emblems of Uruk, as proof that I'm coming from you, and then let me travel all alone. And somehow no one thought that this was terribly sketchy. But, with the royal seal and a message for Ishtar, conveniently written down on a clay tablet nowadays... Lugalbanda walked really slowly away from the camp until the moment he turned a corner around a mountain and then, bam, shot out to Uruk, arriving there around midnight, slightly before Ishtar took her dinner. Why is she eating so late? Who really knows? The priests probably had some clever explanation for this. After presenting the royal seal's Ishtar asked how it was that he'd made it all the way back on his own. But rather than answering, he said, I have a message for you from King Enmerkar. He asks why you have blessed him with prosperity for the last 50 years, but now in this campaign have deserted him? We all wish to either see victory or to return home, not to be stuck in this endless siege. And Lady Ishtar replied with a parable, instructing in to travel to a certain clear river, cut down a lone tamarisk tree, and with it weave a basket that he'll use to catch a fish with his own hands from the river, then cook it and eat it. Lugubanda nods as she speaks, fully comfortable with cryptic and mystical solutions when dealing with gods, but then in the last line she reveals the true meaning of her parable. Then he will have brought to an end that which in the subterranean waters provides the life strength of Arata. It turns out that the reason the city was able to withstand the siege indefinitely was because an underground stream transported fish and water into the city. But the tamarisk tree is famous for absorbing salt from the ground, and so Ishtar's plan boils down to catch all the fish and salt the river. And indeed, in short order after Banda returns, the troops use the tamarisk to salt the waters for the city's underground aquifers, and stop up all the fish that had been feeding the defending troops. Soon enough, the city of Arata's strength finally fails, and their walls are repainted the green and red of Uruk. Thus ending the tale of Banda and the four-tablet royal cycle of the war between Arata and Uruk. Now, there is a lot going on with this story, and the hardest part of all of it is that very clearly Lugal Banda was a character with many, many epic adventures that have been lost to us. Superhero archetypes like we have nowadays with the Marvel and the DC are really as old as humanity itself, We'll see this with Gilgamesh, but we see it here, too, with Lugalbanda. Here is a man who is known to be able to survive in any wilderness, and then he receives the additional superpower of super speed and greater strength, There's no reason to think for a moment that the 2,500 years in which Mesopotamian gods and kings were an active cultural force, a period that only ended with the final death of the cuneiform script around 400 AD, saw Lugal Benda going on any fewer adventures than Batman, Superman, or any other modern iteration of the superheroic character. But just to fill in a few gaps en reigns for another 400 to 900 years, according to the official Sumerian kings list. And when he finally dies, it's Lugalbanda, now famed as the Wandering King, who's selected to take over. He then rules for 1,200 years, exploring every part of heaven and earth, and has all manner of adventures that have been, as we say, lost to time almost makes me motivated to write Lugelband a fan fiction. The setting alone would make it a compelling and unique comic book. Sadly, I barely have the talent to podcast. Anything else is likely beyond me. In these two tales, though, I want you to notice the direct power of gods in this world. Honestly, I've stripped out a lot of it, because there is long sections of just pieties that don't really advance the story. But even in this stripped-down retelling, we can see that they aren't just sitting up in heaven somewhere. The gods truly are active forces that the people of Sumer believed they contended with on a daily basis. It is an important context, because if we take the gods to be metaphors, as is often the case with modern reinterpretations of ancient myth, then we're going to miss out a lot when we get to the Epic of Gilgamesh. And that's because we're going to speed past Lugalbanda's reign, skipping entirely the brief interregnum of Dumuzid the Fisherman, probably a fellow sharing the name of the more famous god, not the god himself, then finally get to the big man himself, King Gilgamesh. Except, you'll notice that as part of the re-recording of early episodes, there's one more new episode before we get to Gilgamesh himself. I've gone in and added a more historically focused episode to give some background on where these Sumerian folks come from and how these myths fit into the historical picture. If you're really excited for Gilgamesh and Mesopotamian myth, you can, you can skip on to episode three. But for everyone else, join us next time for some archaeology and watch as it slowly transitions into actual history as we look at the historical origins. the Mesopotamian civilization. Thank you for listening.